<clears throat> now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In Episode 8, Just Science interviews Dr. Katherine Siegfried Speller from Purdue University about the impact of disturbing media on forensic professionals. Repeated exposure to violent and graphic media can have long-term negative effects on digital forensic examiners. Dr. Katherine Siegfried Speller is researching the connection between disturbing media and the examiners who analyze it every day. Listen along as she discusses digital forensic examiners and the impact of disturbing media in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. Mike Planty. Hello and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Planty, with NIJ's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. Here to help us with our discussion today is Dr. Katherine Siegfried Speller from the Department of Computer and Information Technology at Purdue University. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Dr. Siegfried Speller studies the intersection between behavioral sciences and technology-facilitated crime and digital forensics. Her most recent work focuses on the psychological well-being and job satisfaction of digi digital <laughs> forensic examiners and multimedia analysts exposed to disturbing media. She is a fellow of the Digital and Me Multimedia Sciences section of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, member of the International Association of Law Enforcement Intelligence Analysts, and a member of the American Psychological so Association. She is also a deputized special investigator and member of the Tippecanoe High Tech Crime Unit. Our topic today is looking at the impact of disturbing media on investigators and digital evidence examiners. Uh, before diving into that area, Professor, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your work? So I uh, mainly study internet crimes against children, and I look at the reasons why uh, individuals commit crimes online. And so uh, the majority of my background is in forensic psychology, so really interested in behavioral characteristics and socio-legal factors. And because of my work with law enforcement, my psych background has sort of merged into this new area of trying to understand how evidence impacts law enforcement and specifically uh, digital forensic examiners. Interesting. So I noticed that you, you look at the psychology of the offenders online, people trolling online, hackers, cyber threats. Um, what, what are some interesting findings related to uh, that, that work? One of the things that we see is that, you know, computer criminal behavior is not very different from traditional forms of non-computer behavior. So what I mean by that is they tend to be antisocial, um, antagonistic. They share some of the similar personality characteristics that we see. And in fact, one of the studies that I uh, conducted looked at psychopathy or psychopaths. And the question was, you know, are computer hackers psychopathic? And what we found is that, yes, they actually do exhibit more psychopathic characteristics than people who do not commit computer crimes. And that is, again, very um, characteristic of deviance in general. And so we see that maybe the question then is, 
maybe computer criminals are not that different from other types of criminal behavior, right? That they share similar characteristics mm -hmm. and uh, do bad things online because it just might be easier and more accessible. Yeah, it's, it's just a means of how they commit their criminal behavior and their deviance. Exactly. So one thing really interested is how has the internet really changed the whole approach to your understanding of the use of the internet for criminal activity? The easiest way to think about this is uh, we call it the triple A engine. And so essentially it's more accessible, you know, 40% of the world has internet access. And so that makes 40% of people either a victim or a suspect, right? And so mm -hmm. you have accessibility, you also have uh, affordability. It's relatively cheap now, um, especially with smartphones. You don't even need a quote unquote traditional computer anymore to commit a lot of these crimes. And then finally, anonymity really allows individuals to feel comfortable engaging in a behavior online that they may traditionally not do in the real world. And so um, even think about cyberbullying. Um, I might pick a fight with somebody face to face, you know, depending on the power dynamic, right? Am I the bully or am I the person being bullied? But online, you could post and say anything you want. It could be anonymous or not. And I think, it, again, it makes it easier for people to engage in those behaviors. That's interesting. And we know like, almost all crime has some form of digital evidence, probably, because people have phones, like you said. Uh, so it's just not limited to online uh, criminal behavior. Yeah, exactly. So when we think about, you know, traditional computer crimes or um, computer evidence, we think about, you know, hackers and uh, maybe even mm -hmm. cyber terrorists. But we don't just think about the traditional drug dealer or maybe somebody who causes a car accident and somebody across the street happened to have taken a photo or caught it on camera. Um, think about surveillance and, um, you know, even IOT devices, so internet of things. You know, we have doorbells now that capture pictures of people stealing packages. And so the, the crime is theft, but again, it involves possibly digital evidence that's gonna be collected at the scene. So with this rise in the internet, internet of things, the, the massive increase in the availability of digital evidence, more and more investigators and examiners are coming in contact and there's more demand for these um, types of examiners. So tell us about your work now with, on the, the impact of uh, disturbing images. Yeah, so I'm uh, incredibly lucky. We have a great partnership here at Purdue University with the Typica New High Tech Crime Union. And so it's a group of digital forensic examiners here in the county that all work together in a centralized unit. And I'm deputized to be able to assist on cases and also, um, you know, collect data for research. And working with these individuals has allowed me to see a different side. It's incredible the amount of data that comes in and the number of cell phones that are dropped off. And, and of course, everybody wants that data processed quickly because these sort of mom and pop shops, that's what we call them, right? Are a little bit different than the traditional DNA forensic labs or toxicology where you send it out to the FBI and you wait several weeks, maybe months to get the data back or the results back. Whereas we can process it in-house relatively quickly. Um, but again, because of that, there's this sense of urgency constantly that I see that our examiners are, you know, they're always needing that evidence. They want that evidence to be processed quickly. And I think it does cause a lot of stress. So just in general, uh, just the pressures on examiners to go through, triage all that information, find what they're looking for, and then produce it in usable form for the investigator or prosecutor. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I have a background in traditional forensics as well. And so it was really interesting to see sort of my, um, I guess, educational and academic training in forensics and how it transitions to this sort of digital world, where again, the um, person who's examining the DNA evidence, I mean, they know they're processing blood, right? They're not going to suddenly be shocked and find something else, most likely. Whereas in our case, you know, we might have an examiner that's working a traditional drug trafficking case, and they're going through somebody's cell phone looking for contacts. And instead, they mm -hmm. end up finding child pornography or child sexual exploitation material, um, CSIM, which is uh, what we call it now. And so again, all of a sudden now, a new crime has been discovered, and maybe that examiner wasn't prepared to see those images. And I think, mm -hmm. again, that's part of why this is such a unique area of forensics. Yeah, it is. And, and like you said, if you're, one thing may lead to another. And the constant changing of the apps, of the cell phones, of the tablets, the Internet of Things starts to connect all of these devices. And one thing can lead to another. When people think of digital evidence, they think about child exploitation, pornography. But for example, uh, the connection of video and audio, uh, we've seen that play out uh, high profile shootings, for example, Las Vegas or the school shootings where people are assembling cell phones with timestamps and CCTV and other types of devices and putting together a time frame where you can put together a pretty tra uh, traumatic um, uh, recording of that of those events. Yeah, absolutely. And I um, actually, my colleague is still working on the case out of Florida, the school shooting, because again, there was so much digital evidence. And um, what this colleague has seen is that it's you have to enhance the audio, right? And so you have to hear it over and over again. And mm -hmm. um, it, yeah, and so again, I don't think, it, we don't even consider, well, how is audio impacting our examiners if, it's, if there's no video? And so that's why, again, podcasts mm -hmm. are fantastic because they allow, allow us to imagine what people look like and imagine the story and the narrative they're telling. And our examiners are doing the same thing. They can't actually see what's happening. And so as they're listening to this audio over and over again, their brain is naturally putting together a narrative. And so what we see is that that is very traumatic for these individuals. Yeah, uh, and that, that's right. So you, you talked about some of the things they have to do, right? So the purpose of the examiner is to, in many ways, it, it may be a, an audio or, or video. They're looking to identify people. They're looking to enhance the audio, to look very carefully at what's going on, to try to replay and understand the context. And in some cases for child exploitation, they're trying to identify and use tools to determine, is this person under age? Where will they be located? Things like that. So you, you become really involved in the details of the case. Yes, exactly. So again, identifying who that individual is, possibly the age of the individual. Um, you might start thinking about uh, background noises. So any clue, right? And so again, that yep. might require that the individual either visually looks at the image or video over and over again, or has to listen to it as well. I mean, there's just so much data that has to be processed. And another thing too, is that, um, these images, depending on which country you're in and what the laws say, they have to be categorized. And so you might end up saying, well, you know, 10% of the images that this individual has collected with child sexual exploitation material is going to be categorized as X, right? And so we're going to be able to charge them more harshly. Well, in order to do that, the examiner has to look at these images and make that determination because yes, there are some great software programs that can assist, but it's the ultimate mm -hmm. decision of the examiner. 
And so again, they they're the ones that make that call to try to determine the age and then um, the likelihood of that victim being a certain, I guess, age. And then also what the level of victimization is as well. So like you said, the, the offense and the sentencing will be tied to the severity of the case and they have to document that. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting part. So it goes beyond. And also um, they're trying to, for sort of things like homicide or other types of crimes, they could really document premeditation in many ways from like a search history or something of that nature. So they're looking at uncovering intent with the offender also. Yeah, exactly. And then if you think about, you know, if they simply miss that one search line, right, or that one instance where, I mean, the Casey Anthony case is famous, where there was evidence that was missed, and it possibly could have really changed the outcome um, of that verdict. And, and I think that from an examiner standpoint, there's so much data to sift through that you don't want to miss that one piece of evidence, whether it exonerates the person as well, right? So maybe exactly. you're missing something that possibly could have shown that this in, individual is actually innocent, right? And so again, I think there's just so much data and a lot of pressure to make sure you don't miss anything. Exactly. So as examiners and investigators are um, looking at these pictures, what's the impact uh, on these individuals? Yeah. So um, again, I think that there's, when from a, a psychological standpoint, you're going to have um, increased stress. And so stress can be exhibited by maybe changes in mood. Um, you might also see changes in eating habits. So thinking about coping mechanisms, um, whether somebody maybe starts uh, using alcohol or drugs, taking sedatives. So there's a lot of you know, those types of changes, but then you're also gonna see changes as far as productivity, not wanting mm -hmm. to go to work, job satisfaction dropping, and occupational hazards like burnout, and um, an inability to connect and starting that, that feeling of being withdrawn and detachment. And so there's all kinds of impact, whether it's uh, physical, emotional, and also social as well. So family members will start noticing a change. So again, it really does impact all aspects of a person's life. And, and many of these examiners must work alone or isolated, or they can't talk to family members about a case just because it's sensitive. And so it's that further isolation that could happen. Yeah, one of my, I guess it's terrible to say one of my favorite stories, but um, I had an officer mm -hmm. tell me this once and it really hit home for me because he was talking about how when he worked in homicide, how all of his friends thought it was the coolest thing and they wanted to hear about the case he was working and, and they wanted to hear the gory details. You know, the same reasons why we love yeah. listening to podcasts and we love Law and & Order <laughs> and, and some of these different shows, right? But when yeah. he switched to uh, Child Crimes, the Child Crimes Unit, nobody wanted to know what he was working on anymore. And it was like, that's too dirty. And I don't want to, I don't want to hear those stories. And so he actually found that he lost a lot of that support system. And even his own wife told him, I don't want to know what you work on. And so it was that he said that was one of the hardest things to deal with. And he, that sense of isolation, he lost everybody. And so I think too, um, there is a little bit of a stigma even working on these types of cases that examiners and investigators can feel. Yeah, the, I mean, there, there's a true calling, you know, to help. But at the same time, people, are, they ask the question, how can you do that, right? I mean, we're, we're looking at some digital evidence that can be used to identify uh, underage individuals. And these tools are always uh, constantly changing. But when you look at that, how do you validate a tool like that? We're going through, it's the same type of thing. A lot of people don't want anything to do with that type of uh, work because it, it is uh, another level of severity that's just beyond uh, many crime types. 
Yeah. And even people have asked me the same thing. Oh, how could you do this research and how can you work cases involving internet crimes against children? And it's almost like there's, there must be something wrong with me that allows me or us, right. To do this type of work. And, and I think there is a stigma associated with that. That's a good question. So what are the coping mechanisms that people self-regulate around this work beyond the professional services? Are there things that people do to, to keep things in, in order for their own lives? Yeah. And so not all coping mechanisms, so sorry, are going to be bad, right? So distraction might be one. Uh, I know I definitely use this one. You know, I might, I'd rather clean the house than work on something or watch Netflix for hours. And so some is not necessarily bad, but if it starts impacting productivity, then that's when you start seeing issues. And so again, substance abuse, um, we have seen where they're more likely to use sedatives and um, mm. also withdraw. So withdraw from family and friends, um, even withdraw from coworkers as well. Cause again, you just don't want to talk about it. And you I think there's also a fear of what if an officer that I work with or an examiner I work with, they're ha- maybe quote unquote handling it fine, right? They're not having any symptoms or problems. And so you might be uh, more likely to withdraw cause you're afraid they'll find out how you're feeling. And, and so I think also a little bit of that fear as well. We see also exercising too much could be problematic and eating too much. Um, and one of them that was, I thought really interesting was shopping. So shopping was shopping. more likely to increase. Yeah. And again, we kind of laugh about retail therapy, but that's just another form of distraction <laughs> and not dealing with, you know, the symptoms and feelings that you're having. Yeah. You just complete distraction, take your mind off it, move on. You talk about um, the burnout and the health and wellness of the individual, about um, bias and work quality. So a person is, uh, they're not going about their work in an independent way. They're maybe now slanted towards an outcome because it's inevitable, they're going to find it. So they're not uh, being objective with their search or their work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a really great point. And so I've even seen that with um, some of the examiners that I've talked with that it's almost that, you know, you're surrounded by the worst of the worst every single day and you forget that there's good things to humanity and there's good people out there. And so when a case comes in, you might assume, well, this is another guilty person that I'm going to find evidence on rather than thinking, well, maybe this is a time where the evidence is going to show the opposite, right? That this person isn't. And I've actually seen that case where it turned out somebody was trying to set up somebody else and they did um, some search history related to uh, sexual exploitation material. And it turned out that this person was definitely not guilty of it. And the evidence showed that it was the coworkers that were setting them up. And so again, you know, you have to remember that you can't let those biases, like you just said, um, we call it uh, forensic confirmation bias, kind of bleed into those cases. There's a uh, distinctions you've made in your work between investigators that do both the investigation and the examination versus um, folks that are just digital examiners, whereas the investigator is actually not only looking at the images, but often going out and interviewing victims and offenders. So there's even a a more uh, complex picture there. Yeah. And again, I think this comes back to my understanding and background in uh, traditional forensics, you know, how different it is, you know, the, um, the CSI individual collects the evidence and sends it to the FBI crime lab Mm -hmm. for processing. Whereas our examiners do both. I mean, they're out interviewing the potential offender. They're interviewing the victim. They are then taking the evidence and analyzing it. 
you know, so again, there, it, I think it's a bit more complex of a picture. And so what the research really was interested in is if you're the investigator and you, the investigator then work, you know, possibly meets with the suspect, possibly meets with the victims, right? Well, mm -hmm. then you have some units where the examiners only look at the evidence. But then like my unit that we have here in Tukinu County, they do both. And so that was the, really the question. Are those individuals that meet the victims and see the, the evidence of those crimes against the victims and also the offenders? And if they see kind of the whole narrative, is that worse off um, emotionally mm -hmm. and psychologically than it would be to have those kind of roles separated out? And, and what my uh, preliminary work, because I, you know, there's only one study, uh, suggests <laughs> is that, yeah, it is worse. I mean, because you see the evidence of the crime and you've met these individuals, that it's more stressful. It must be just to, to have that human aspect of it just to, co to come in. So what are those attitudes towards receiving or seeking mental health services? Well, it's exactly as I'm sure everybody would expect, right? That there's a huge mm -hmm. stigma against it and that the majority of individuals um, in law enforcement are going to be, quote unquote, indifferent to it. And so the same people who would say that yes, mental health services should be required. The same people are gonna say, nope, I don't think it needs to be. And you're gonna have a group that thinks that they're indifferent, the, the quote unquote neutral attitude about it. And that's very consistent with other research as well, um, looking at you yeah. know homicide units and uh, law enforcement in general. And again, I think that comes back to that stigma and officers, um, that kind of fear of being able labeled as weak or uh, non-resilient you know, this idea that it's going to impact their career and that they might um, lose their position or, you know, be fired or to a desk position. And uh, so, yeah, this is definitely a part of that culture that needs to be broken down. And so, so what are some of those solutions with uh, getting uh, these individuals the services they need or training? Yeah. So um, uh, things like this, having conversations, starting what I tell people, start the narrative. And so we need to change that narrative and let individuals know that the data shows there's problems out there. So we can't ignore it anymore. And um, they may not realize that they're symptomatic because they may not realize that their irritable attitude and mood, that their, their increased negativity, that they're withdrawing from their family and friends, that these are actually symptoms of their, the work that they're doing. And so I think part of this is also education and then letting the commanders know that this needs to be very much a top-down approach. And so what I've seen is that uh, the individuals that might be in charge of the units, maybe they are not as aware of how the evidence has changed. And so what I mean by that is maybe a couple of years ago, you wouldn't have, not everybody had a smartphone, not everybody had all this digital data, and we didn't see the internet artifacts that we see today. And so, yeah, the commander might have worked these types of cases five, 10 years ago, but it's very different yeah. experience today for these individuals that are coming onto the scene and they're working cases with, for example, um, over, you know, terabytes of child sexual mm -hmm. exploitation material, whereas before finding 10 images was shocking, right? And again, that's all because of technology's changed. And so I think very much, you know, educating the top down and um, letting them know that they, they need to put things in place. So whether it's, again, education and training, and also setting an expectation that this is, is and will probably happen, right? You will probably become symptomatic, mm -hmm. which is why we need to be prepared for it and have mandatory, I guess, support in place. So it also takes away from that individual's decision of, do I want to seek treatment? 
because I think if you take that choice away, it also helps reduce the stigma because yeah. everybody has to seek treatment. That's right. You don't have a choice. So, you know, you know, three other people don't seem to have a problem, but they are, they are having a problem. So, um, but I don't know it, right? So if you have these objective measures of monitoring or mandatory monitoring, it takes that completely away uh, from the equation. Are, are there certain types of staff um, or folks that are better able to deal with this situation? Or is it just a combination of monitoring, making sure people are well, and so one thing I will say is that I don't, I think like there is no one person that's going to be ideal for this type of position. And what I mean by that is um, I know examiners that have kids that handle this very well because they think of this as they're keeping kids in general safe. Kids like, you know, their own children, right? But then I know other yep. examiners that once they have a child, this changes everything and they can no longer work mm. these types of cases. And so again, and I also think that that's, that's okay. It's okay to have it be so individualistic that you might think you're okay with this work and then suddenly it changes someday. Again, I have a colleague that uh, she's been doing this for years and elderly abuse cases, those are becoming a trigger for her and it's because her mother is older now and that's really hard for her. And so again, I mean, you just don't realize how over time those triggers might change or suddenly you know, become prevalent. And so I think, again, these are, oh, these are the types of conversations that we need to have. Yeah, so it's not just the chronic exposure and dosage over time that builds up. It's also personal life changes that happen uh, that make you either more closely related to the situation that you're dealing with or, or less so. Uh, that could be really important. One really cool thing about you know, understanding this problem is that it's not just, oh, if I avoid case X, I'm never going to have this problem because it could be accumulation, mm -hmm. right, of cases over all of these years and all of a sudden it becomes symptomatic, right? And or just said, it could be that this one case bothered me for whatever reason. But I will say that a strong support system is key. And that support system comes in many forms. It could be family members. Um, it could also be somebody at church or, you know, being able to talk to a minister or a preacher. And so finding somebody that you could communicate with is key. And also uh, what the research will suggest is having that support system be somebody other than law enforcement. Because again, you don't want to only be surrounded by terrible negative <laughs> experiences yeah. in those conversations. And so you want to remind yourself that, there are great people out there in the world. And so you want to make sure that you maintain those relationships as well. What are some of the key research areas that you think really um, need more development in this area? I definitely think um, we've done some great work already with Internet Crimes Against Children investigators and detectives. We've had a lot of data on that. And I but again, I don't think we have enough data on how this impacts our examiners. And so, again, the digital forensic examiners which includes our multimedia analysts as well. And somebody we don't think about, and I was very much um, one of those individuals that we forget a lot of these positions are contracted out. And so you have civilians that are not law enforcement, right? So they're not law enforcement, but they are certified examiners and they might be hired um, to come in and work a case. And so they may not have access to the mandatory treatment that a law enforcement um, agency is going to provide because again they're providing a civilian role 
And so I think that's also something that we need to consider is, well, how are, you know, are these cases impacting the civilians that work in this area? Because again, that's, that's quite unique, right? That's very different than maybe mm-hmm. some of the other forensic sciences that we have. Yeah, they have some technical expertise, not necessarily expertise in understanding child exploitation or some of these really strong cases. Um, and uh, so they're coming in with that, and we just don't really have a good sense of how they're responding in terms of that, uh, the trauma or the impact on them. Right. And then we're also seeing, too, you know, uh, they're not necessarily digital forensic examiners, but we're seeing people from Microsoft, for example, that are suing because they are being exposed to digital examiners. And you're thinking about um, individuals that moderate social media sites. And so again, we're seeing that the exposure to disturbing media is not just impacting our law enforcement community, but it's really impacting any individual that's being exposed repeatedly. And part of that reason is because they're not being told that that's what they're gonna see. So, you know, with the Microsoft, for example, the individual did not want to work on those cases and was essentially assigned to work in that um, unit. And we also see moderators as well. How do you prepare somebody that they are possibly going to see the worst of the worst or tell them, right? Imagine the worst image you're going to see and it's going to be worse than that. I think, you know, for a lot of people, they just don't, they don't know what's on the internet. And that's good. I mean, I, I hope (laughs) humanity doesn't ever have to know, right? But for some people, how do you prepare them for all of these terrible things they're about to see? Uh, That's a really good question because, I mean, you talk about training, right? And what they're going to face. And that's just a really difficult thing to train, to even create a training program around, I would imagine. I'm assuming that changing technology is also going to change how people see these images. Yes, absolutely. And so what you're seeing too is that um, because of the high definition, right, the high resolution, the images are so realistic. And at times, I think it's even um, because of computer-generated images or a phrase you might hear is virtual pornography. It's really even hard to know, is this real? Is it not real? And deep fakes. Yeah. I mean, maybe an examiner would be able to say, okay, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to somehow disassociate from this and I'm going to tell myself these aren't real. Like these kids, this abuse does not happen to the kids, but you can't say that anymore. I mean, it's you, I mean, nobody knows what's real and what's not anymore because the technology is just that good. And I think that can be really hard for a lot of examiners as well. And I imagine too, that the way, things appear or don't disappear on the internet, you may see the same victim victims showing up over and over. And while the victim might be removed, if those images are on the internet uh, over and over again. And so connecting those images is something that um, is a line of work and making sure that the victims have some sort of uh, restitution or, um, you know, some sort of means to um, even eliminate those images somehow. Yeah, it's exactly. And it's a, it's definitely a battle that um, victims will have to face, you know, when they're constantly asking for those images to be taken down off the internet. And what we also see too, is that um, victims do have a choice if they want to be notified when their images are, I guess they appear in a collection. And so again, people want to know, and then other victims don't want to know. And the, those victims that do get notified are able to receive some restitution from the, the offender. But again, I mean, like you said, those vic- those images will circulate and be available forever. I mean, that's just the way the internet works. And I think too, um, you know, kind of spinning a little bit from your, your question, your point is that because technology changes so fast and 
you know, we have all these different social media apps and it's like you start understanding how kick works and all of a sudden you have this new app that's appearing. And so I think that leads to, again, that burnout of this inability to solve the problem, right? Like it's like this problem is always going to exist and I am just going to get buried in the cases, buried in these images. And it's, that's why people become sort of that defeatist attitude. Yeah, I, I think in another conversation I had one one person made the the point that the criminals are early adopters of technology, right? And they're just the minute something comes out, they can pivot, move on to a new app, and it really creates a, a lot of complication in terms of, like you said, um, access. Uh, you have uh, encryption issues, other types, and and obviously the internationalization of the problem. Oh yeah, absolutely. And there's, you know, and parents want to know like, well, how do I keep my kids safe? And, and I don't know how we answer that. Right. I mean, do you not give them cell phones? Cause that's just not realistic when they reach a certain age and then you teach them not to use this app, but they end up a new app gets created. And now, now we have vault apps, you know, apps that look like calculators and very innocent apps children are able to use. And it's just, I mean, yeah, how do we even keep kids safe? And so I know law enforcement are constantly asked those questions and my examiners will go in and do educational talks at schools that it's just, you can't keep up with technology. Yeah, and and of course, offenders know that, right? And they have all kinds of grooming techniques online that they take advantage of. Exactly. So I, we touched on a lot of things. Um, how, how do you expect things to change? Um, are there other um, trends or patterns you're seeing? So I, you know, the big pattern that I'm, I'm, you know, hopeful that I'm seeing is that we're having these conversations. So I've been invited to talk at um, different law enforcement conferences, and um, we've actually even had examiners stand up and share their own stories of their own battles with PTSD and, you know, seeking treatment. And I think that this is a good, this is a good change. The willingness to share these stories and also try to break again that stigma that we seem to have regarding um, mental health support. And it, think, it seems like these types of cases are pretty obvious to make that claim, right? That these are traumatic and there are, you know, no matter who you are, they're gonna have some sort of impact. So it, it seems like this is the right time to have those conversations and to get the services to these professionals so they can continue to do and work um, effectively in this area. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I know you mentioned this earlier, you know, the, the idea of, you know, maybe bringing an examiner in and maybe they work the work in the unit for a year and then they, they rotate out. Well, again, that's so different than the traditional forensic sciences where you have a PhD in chemistry, right? And so this is going to be your work. You can't just take a chemist and then rotate them into the computer forensics unit and say, all right, run some, you know, analyses. And so the training that goes into these individuals as well, I mean, that's a lot of money. And plus, the majority of these individuals I know love the work they do. They know they're making a difference. They know they're helping keep kids and other people safe. And, but they, they are not, they're coming to a point where they can't keep themselves safe, you know, where they can't do the work anymore. And, and again, you know, that's where these kind of conversations are really going to help make a change. Yeah, and understanding what are those treatments like you said one of the big things is having a strong support network especially out of law enforcement but what are those other things that can alleviate some of the trauma 
and, and really continue to leverage the experience that these investigators have because the technology is changing constantly. So you really want those folks not to cycle out after a year or two years or even five years. It's, it's really important work. That's, you know, what is so great about the NIJ and their, and their interest in this area and the funding they're providing. You know, one of the big, big gaps we have right now is what treatment does work. You know, what interventions are working? And so should we require mandatory counseling every six months? Is it, is it every year? And the, even if we do require that or make that recommendation, who's paying for that? Um, and are you requiring it of all people that interact with the evidence? And so is that also the district attorneys, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of people that end up seeing these images that we kind of forget about and that are part of that criminal justice process. And so, you know, really understanding what interventions work. I know there's some suggestions right now, things like frequent breaks, having the television on, if you can, muting the computer. And so you're just mm -hmm. seeing the, the video or the image and not the sound. Again, um, you can't do that if you're the audio technician, but things like that, you know, so there's, there's been some of those recommendations not putting somebody in the basement all by themselves. So definitely one area that we, um, we can definitely make an impact here is understanding what interventions work and what don't work. Yeah, because we can expect one thing that it's not going to change. And it's obviously these crimes will continue. Uh, so how we can prepare our professionals to handle these cases is, is most important, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'd like to thank our guest today, Professor Catherine uh, Siegfried-Speller, for sitting down with Just Science to discuss the impact of disturbing media on investigators and digital evidence examiners. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. If you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your podcast platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and resources in the forensic field, visit ForensicCOE.org. I'm Mike Planney, and this has been another episode of Just Science. This concludes our season on digital evidence. If you would like to hear more from Dr. Siegfried Speller, visit ForensicCOE.org and watch her archived webinar today. Thank you for tuning in and get ready for our National Forensic Science Week episode where we talk about GEDmatch. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.